Imagine, you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, Your tanning session is now complete. What just happened? You found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you wherever you go. Get up to $25 off your first month featuring Australian gold. Perfect man, not included. On a chilly December night in 1972, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, what might have been just a routine traffic stop took an unexpected turn when two police officers trailed a mysterious man in a dark Cadillac and their pursuit spiraled into a high-speed chase and a shootout. When officers finally caught up to the vehicle and apprehended the driver, the past four months of fear and torment through the greater Boston area would finally come to an end. I'm Kylie Lowe, and these are the stories of Kathleen Randall, Deborah Ray Stevens, Ellen Reich, Sandra Aramjian, Damaris Singh Gillespie, and Ruth Hamilton on Dark Down East. Boston, Massachusetts is the biggest city in New England, a place where the past echoes through every cobblestone street, the future reflects off each towering skyscraper, and everything is blanketed with the salt air of Massachusetts Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. It's a city where history and innovation converge to create a captivating urban tapestry. But what sets Boston apart from other East Coast cities is its reputation as a thriving hub of education. It's a haven for knowledge seekers, a vibrant epicenter for learners of all ages with renowned institutions like Boston University, Boston College, Northeastern, and Tufts, to name a few. These institutions infuse the city with a youthful energy and a genuine enthusiasm for learning that reverberates through the very streets. And in 1972, Boston was the historic educational city that beckoned 19-year-old Deborah Ray Stevens. Debbie, as she was called by her family, was a sophomore physical therapy student at Boston University, and she also took classes at Northeastern University, which occupied the same general area as BU. On a typical day, Debbie would take the train or bus to get from class from home in nearby Lynn, Massachusetts. But on the night of September 14, 1972, she decided to borrow her sister's car. Debbie chatted with her friends on campus that night around 9.30 p.m., but it seemed like she didn't actually go to class as intended. And this is where things get a little foggy. Her movements couldn't be traced after she was seen chatting with her friends. When Debbie didn't make it home by 10 p.m. as expected, her family tried to track her down themselves. They didn't immediately involve police in their search because they didn't have any cause for alarm. Not yet, anyway. Until, at 6 a.m. on September 15th, when police received a call from a man who said he'd just found a body in the lilac bushes on his street. And this body was later identified that morning as Deborah Ray Stevens. She was laying only 75 yards away from her own home. Police believed that she had been killed elsewhere and her body was dumped there, but it's not clear how they made this determination. The medical examiner's initial report was that Debbie had been strangled 
and possibly sexually assaulted, and she likely died between 2 and 3 a.m. Not long after her body was discovered, police located the car that Debbie had driven to class the night before, blocking someone's driveway two blocks away from her house. Anthony Pearson wrote for the Boston Globe that the dashboard and front seat of the car had at least two bullet holes, and traces of lead were found inside the vehicle, indicating that those shots were fired from someone inside. But what's kind of strange is that there was no blood in the car, and Debbie didn't have any gunshot wounds herself. So as investigators were speaking with friends and family members who could provide insight into who Debbie was and her habits, a theory emerged. Maybe Debbie picked up a hitchhiker. Hitchhiking was very common in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, specifically among the baby boomer generation who was coming of age in that era. It was so prevalent that the FBI ran campaigns against the practice, warning drivers that the innocent-looking stranger on the side of the highway could be a quote-unquote sex maniac or a vicious murderer. According to a New York Times op-ed by Ginger Strand, the author of Killer on the Road, Violence and the American Interstate, one particular anti-hitchhiking campaign by Rutgers University included police officers handing out cards to female hitchhikers that read, quote, If I were a rapist, you'd be in trouble, end quote. Yeah, I hear it too. The language of these campaigns oozes with victim shaming. According to reporting by Jim Steadman for The Daily Item, Debbie's mother told investigators that Debbie was a trusting person and she always wanted to help. If someone possibly asked for a ride as Debbie drove to or from campus that night, it wouldn't have been surprising for Debbie to swing open the car door and welcome a seemingly harmless stranger inside. Only 12 hours passed between Debbie not returning home, the discovery of her body, and the launch of the investigation into her death. But at the time, investigators had no idea that another Boston University student had also disappeared under alarming circumstances. And soon, they'd have a second homicide to investigate. On October 1st, 1972, hunters walking in a densely wooded area of Nashua, New Hampshire, discovered the badly decomposed and partially nude body of a woman. She was on her back with her arms outstretched, leaving investigators to believe that the woman had been dragged to the spot where she was found. The woman didn't have any identification on her. However, two distinctive rings on her fingers were the first clue as to who she might be. The same day, police sent out a teletype message to all law enforcement agencies in New England with a description of the woman and her jewelry. And Massachusetts police responded promptly because the woman found in the New Hampshire woods matched a report of a missing Boston University freshman, 18-year-old Kathleen Ann Randall. Kathleen was a confident student who always did well in school. She was excited to start classes at Boston University in the fall of 1972 to pursue her dream of becoming a doctor and possibly following in her father's footsteps. A friend of Kathleen's told the Boston Globe that Kathleen was a friendly, social person and beautiful, too, with long blonde hair and a contagious smile. She said that people noticed when Kathleen walked in the room and Kathleen was aware of the attention she attracted. The friend said Kathleen was confident about how she handled the guys who approached her wanting to talk. She didn't let anyone bother her, 
And yet, the friend said Kathleen was maybe a little naive, green. Her hometown of Centerville, Massachusetts on Cape Cod was a far cry from the big city of Boston. In early September of 1972, Kathleen moved into her dormitory in the West Campus of BU on Babcock Street in Boston proper. Boston University isn't really a self-contained campus. University buildings pepper some of the busiest streets in the city and stretch across multiple neighborhoods, so it could be a mile or longer walk between the furthest reaches of campus. Kathleen's dorm room was at least a mile from some of her classes on the main campus, and so walking to class from student housing would have meant traversing busy Commonwealth Avenue and its cross streets for quite some distance. If she was in a rush or simply didn't want to walk, though, Kathleen stretched out her arm and lifted a thumb in the air to hitch a free ride to class from a passing driver. On the morning of September 13, 1972, just over two weeks before the discovery in the New Hampshire woods, Kathleen left her dorm with a friend and together they made their way to Maine campus. Donald Dillaby's reporting for the Nashua Telegraph says that after about a mile, Kathleen and the friend parted ways on Commonwealth Avenue around 2.45 p.m. It was enough time for Kathleen to make it to her next class. She had a stacked afternoon of classes that stretched into the evening, her last one starting at 6 p.m. So Kathleen's roommate was expecting her to come home sometime that night. But as the hours passed, Kathleen's roommate grew uneasy. While they were barely two weeks into the semester, and hadn't been living together for all that long, the fact that Kathleen didn't turn up that night or the next morning still felt strange. But who knows, Kathleen had previously mentioned to her roommate that she was going to go home to Centerville for the weekend, so maybe she ducked out of classes early and got a head start back to Cape Cod. There had to be an explanation, so the roommate waited for Kathleen to return. And it wasn't until September 19th that the roommate decided to tell Boston University administrators that she hadn't seen Kathleen in almost a week. The same night, university officials carried out a search across the sprawling city campus, but reports say that the first attempt at locating Kathleen only lasted about two hours, and the search was fruitless. Sources differ slightly on the timeline of what happened next. However, The Nashua Telegraph's coverage of the story says that the university didn't officially report Kathleen missing to the Brighton Division of the Boston Police Department until after midnight on September 21st, eight days since her roommate had last seen her. That was also when Kathleen's family was first notified that she was missing. And finally, law enforcement launched a full-scale search. Boston PD worked to narrow a timeline of Kathleen's movements. Although she said goodbye to her friend on September 13th around 2.45 that afternoon, presumably on her way to a 3 p.m. class, sources say that Kathleen never made it to any of her afternoon classes. Her parents said she called home every single day since she started school, but after the 12th, the phone never rang with Kathleen's voice on the other end of the line. She was also supposed to come home that weekend, and she didn't show up to a concert that she had tickets to with a friend. From the very start, Kathleen's father, Dr. Ellen Randall, suspected foul play, because not only was it out of character for Kathleen to be out of touch with family, but she had left behind many personal belongings and all of her clothes in her dorm, and her bank account hadn't been touched. 
While the search was ongoing through the last week of September, a description of Kathleen circulated around city precincts and throughout campus. She was last seen wearing jeans, a blue sweater, and a green corduroy jacket with some blue rain gear slung over her shoulder. Kathleen was also known to wear distinctive jewelry, a wide gold ring on her right hand and a cameo ring on her left. And it would be one of those very rings that tipped off Boston police when a body was discovered in Nashua, New Hampshire, almost three weeks after Kathleen disappeared. The description of the rings matched the ones Kathleen was known to wear, and dental records later confirmed that the body was in fact that of 18-year-old Kathleen Ann Randall. Due to the state of Kathleen's remains, determining her cause of death was difficult. However, New Hampshire Attorney General Warren B. Rudman said there was a high possibility that Kathleen's death was a homicide, and they were treating the investigation as such. Police searched the woods near where she was found on the lookout for possible evidence, a murder weapon, truly anything they could use to direct the early stages of the investigation. They scanned the ground with metal detectors and sifted soil near where her body was discovered. Any possible findings, though, have never been publicly disclosed. Because Kathleen's body was transported across the Massachusetts state line and found in New Hampshire, Authorities were exploring a possible federal element to the crime. So the FBI was brought into the fold for advanced forensic analysis on Kathleen's clothing and jewelry, as Boston and Nashua police investigated in tandem. With authorities in both states working on Kathleen's case, it was Boston police who noticed, let's call them commonalities, between the cases of Kathleen Randall and Debbie Stevens. Both Kathleen and Debbie were students at Boston University, and both were on their way to or from class when they disappeared. They had even lived in the same dorm West Campus 2 at different times, but since Deborah had actually moved off campus that year, the connection seemed more like a coincidence than a meaningful link. But while there were some similarities, there were differences too, significant ones. Debbie's body was found only 75 yards away from her home in Massachusetts, whereas Kathleen was found in New Hampshire, nearly 50 miles away from where she lived on campus in Boston. And while the pathologist could never determine Kathleen's cause of death, Debbie's was deemed to be strangulation and stab wounds. So yes, there were some similarities, but it was difficult for investigators to confidently connect the two deaths. That is, until Kathleen's mother said her daughter was known to hitchhike as a way of getting around campus. Investigators suspected that on the day she disappeared, Kathleen had been thumbing a ride when someone, possibly her killer, either picked her up or forced her into a vehicle. It had been that same thing, hitchhiking, but the opposite scenario in Debbie's case, with her parents speculating she had been the one to pick up a stranger on the night she was killed. With that hitchhiking hypothesis, police distributed thousands of copies of a bulletin across several Boston-area university campuses seeking information about anyone who had a habit of picking up hitchhikers. Investigators specifically wanted to know if any drivers got physically aggressive towards women who got into their car. And throughout the next three weeks, 
investigators did receive reports of treacherous interactions between hitchhiking women and their drivers. If this effort and these tips turned into anything solid, police were holding that info close to the vest at the time. But then, about a month and a half after the discovery of Kathleen's remains, on November 13, 1972, yet another Boston-area college student was found dead in an abandoned building. When police learned the circumstances of that third woman's last known whereabouts, suddenly the similarities in the two previous cases were beginning to look like a pattern. Around 11 a.m. on the morning of November 9, 1972, 19-year-old Ellen Reich left her apartment to head to class at Emerson College. Later that day, Ellen's roommate Eileen began to worry about Ellen. She hadn't returned home from classes, and it was getting late. Ellen thought it would be best to call Ellen's family to see if they'd heard from her, so she called Ellen's brother, Dr. Paul Reich, who lived in nearby Wellesley. But he hadn't heard from Ellen either, And as he made some calls, Paul learned that Ellen never even made it to her 12 p.m. class that day. Though there was no sign of her, an Associated Press report in the Lowell Sun said that it wasn't until Sunday, November 12th, almost three full days later, that police finally took a missing persons report. They'd barely had a chance to start their investigative efforts when two unsuspecting people made a devastating discovery. According to court documents, on November 13, 1972, two former residents of Seaver Street in Boston had returned to their old apartment to move out the rest of their furniture. The building was scheduled to be demolished and had been vacant for at least a few weeks, so they were alarmed to discover that one of the closets in the unit looked like it had been nailed shut. With caution, they pried the door open. There on the floor was the body of a woman. The woman was later identified as missing student Ellen Reich. She'd been strangled and stabbed. The medical examiner had reason to believe she was still alive when the closet door was sealed shut. It was the third homicide within a three-month span. Ellen Reich, Deborah Ray Stevens, and Kathleen Randall all fit the same victimology. All three were college students in Boston, All three disappeared on their way to or from class, and each of them may have been participating in hitchhiking as either the driver or passenger when they disappeared. When the Daily Item spoke to Ellen's roommate Eileen, she confirmed that they used to hitchhike together. And when Ellen left home on the day she disappeared, she had thumbed for a ride to class. Eileen said she and Ellen had had some scary situations with drivers in the past and acknowledged that it was a risky habit, but they figured since the routes were usually heavily traveled and had many red lights, they'd be able to hop out of the car and away from danger if they needed to. With a working theory that someone was preying on hitchhiking women, police implored women in the Boston area to stop the practice, particularly in the Back Bay neighborhood. Lieutenant Edward Sherry of the Boston Police felt that his warnings were pointless, though. He told Seymour Linscott of the Boston Globe that the best way to stop hitchhiking would be arrests for both the driver and the passenger. Still, he appealed to the public for any information that could help investigators track down a suspect 
and hopefully stop this reign of terror, if, in fact, all three cases were connected. Regarding Ellen's case, Lieutenant Sherry said, quote, We're looking for a deranged individual who not only strangled and stabbed this young girl who had everything to live for, but also nailed her into a coffin, end quote. Investigators seemed at a loss. There were no reported breakthroughs in any of the cases over an almost two-month span, and with the hitchhiking theory not leading anywhere yet, police began to look at other possible connections and motives that would give them a suspect. Although source material says that Ellen was fully clothed when her body was discovered, court records say that a second autopsy found that she had been sexually assaulted, and sexual assault was considered in Debbie and Kathleen's cases, too. With that, police were following up on over 240 reported rape and attempted rape cases in the city as a possible avenue for more information in the three homicides. The cases challenged police across multiple jurisdictions as they attempted to piece together the circumstances surrounding the women's fates. Investigators were running up against a wall with a lack of immediate leads and evidence, and the possibility of a potential serial offender at large only compounded the urgency and pressure on investigators. But they just couldn't work fast enough. Within two weeks, police would have the cases of two more women to investigate. 21-year-old Sandra Aramjian left her apartment on Putnam Avenue near Harvard Square on November 27, 1972, reportedly to hitch a ride. She was expected at her parents' home in New York that same day, and she had a dentist appointment also in New York on the 28th. But by Thursday the 30th, when Sandra hadn't turned up, Sandra's mother sent her a concerned telegram. She said, quote, Very worried about you. Please call home immediately. End quote. The message went unopened and unanswered. On November 28th, before her parents even suspected something was wrong, before her mother ever sent that telegram, the body of a woman was found in a Brockton, Massachusetts park. She was identified several days later as Sandra Aramjian. Meanwhile, on November 29th, while the identity of Sandra was still yet to be determined, 22-year-old Damaris Singh Gillespie, who went by her middle name Singh, left her apartment in Cambridge for work at the Jazz Workshop nightclub where she was a cocktail waitress. Damaris didn't leave in time to walk to the club, so according to a piece by Boston Globe writer John Robinson, she told her roommates she'd just try to catch a ride from their neighbors across the street, who she could see were getting into their car anyway. But those neighbors would later report that they never gave Singh a ride, and she would never make it to work that night, nor did she return home. Court records indicate that Singh's boyfriend contacted Cambridge police the following morning, who then notified her parents that Damaris was missing. Among the series of disappearances and deaths over a three-month span in late 1972, Kathleen, Debbie, Ellen, Sandra, and now Singh, Singh's case garnered a comparatively vigorous response from law enforcement. You couldn't open a newspaper or turn on the TV without seeing Singh Gillespie's face. Flyers with photos of the missing girl and the description of her clothing were distributed all over Boston. When Singh left for work that night, she was wearing open-toed cork sole shoes, a hooded fur coat with her initials DSG embroidered on the lining, and a ring made from one of her grandfather's moonstone cufflinks. 
She also had a turquoise and silver ring. The flyers also encouraged people who may have information about Singh's disappearance to call a 24-hour hotline, which was connected to three different lines, all set up at Singh's apartment, and all manned by her family and friends. They actually received numerous calls to the hotline, including a ransom request for $25,000, but that turned out to just be a cruel hoax by a teenage girl in Maine. After a week of waiting for the phones to ring with credible information, on December 6th, Singh's brother and roommate got a call from an unidentified man who seemed to know a lot about Singh Gillespie. The man talked about the outfit she was wearing on the night she went missing. He said things about her family and friends, and he also acknowledged that he was being recorded, but he didn't seem to care. The man hung up only to call back four more times over the course of two days. Reporting in the Boston Herald Traveler and Record American says that over the course of those five phone calls, the man described Singh's clothing and jewelry in vivid detail. Sure, the information about her attire on the night she disappeared was widely distributed in thousands of missing persons flyers and reported by major news outlets, but the anonymous man seemed to know specifics about her jewelry that were not public information. Singh's brother was sure that the man who called was the person who abducted his sister. Given the opportunity, Singh's family planned to cooperate directly with the kidnapper for her safe return, and police agreed not to intervene. However, once newspapers covered the story of the mysterious phone call, the man never called back. Singh's family publicly pleaded for the man to contact them again, but he never did. They feared the media blitz scared him off and that Singh's life hung in the balance. Those call recordings were maintained in hopes they'd prove helpful to the ongoing investigation. In the meantime, law enforcement continued their efforts to solve the puzzle surrounding the multiple deaths that occurred before Singh vanished, only to have yet another case added to their growing list days later. The investigation into that next case, the murder of Ruth Hamilton, would ultimately yield significant breakthroughs in the other cases, now collectively known as the Hitchhike Murders. On the night of December 21st, 1972, a 22-year-old school teacher named Ruth Hamilton was baking cookies at her parents' house. She planned to bring them to her students so they could decorate them for the upcoming holiday. But Ruth didn't show up to school the next day. After a full day of not seeing or hearing from Ruth, her family paid a visit to Ruth's apartment on Langdon Street in Cambridge. Ruth lived with a roommate, but The roommate was away on a week-long vacation, so the apartment appeared to be empty as Ruth's parents and sister searched each room, until they made a terrible discovery in one of the bedrooms. There was Ruth, in only her undergarments, laying lifeless under a bed. According to Dexter Brine's reporting for the Boston Globe, the medical examiner determined that Ruth had died from traumatic asphyxia, Police believed the motive was likely robbery because Ruth apparently kept a sizable amount of cash and jewelry in a handbag in her apartment. However, there were no signs of a break-in or a struggle, so investigators theorized the presumed robbery had to be one of two scenarios. Ruth knew her attacker and voluntarily let them into her apartment, or she'd been picked up by her attacker and forced back into her own home. 
Kathleen, Debbie, Ellen, Sandra, Singh, Ruth, six women who went missing or were killed, all within a four-month span, all within the same area, with blatant similarities, yet not enough to paint a full picture. While court documents suggested police possessed crucial evidence in some of the cases from the start, it fell short of definitively identifying the individual or individuals responsible for the multiple senseless deaths of young women all over Boston. Families in the entire community grappled with the pervasive sense of despair, an overwhelming feeling of helplessness, and a constant, gnawing fear. When would the ceaseless nightmare come to an end? When would the police put a stop to the horrors that had plagued the city for far too long? As fate would have it, on the day after Christmas in 1972, an unforeseen encounter with a suspicious driver unfolded, ultimately shattering the long-standing mysteries wide open. Around 8 p.m. on December 26, 1972, two Cambridge police officers in an unmarked car spotted a man driving around in a dark-colored Cadillac. The driver slowed to approach a woman walking down the street, and it looked like he was trying to get the woman into his car. The city had remained on high alert amidst the unsolved cases, and law enforcement had been on the lookout for suspicious behavior between motorists and would-be hitchhikers. So, the Cambridge officers decided to follow the Cadillac to see what unfolded. But the driver seemed to catch on that he was being surveilled. Suddenly, he stepped on the gas and peeled off. The officers followed, and a high-speed chase began. Another police vehicle joined the chase, intensifying the pursuit. And for a moment, the man in the Cadillac managed to ditch the tail, just long enough to abandon his car and flee on foot but he wasn't fast enough. The two Cambridge officers caught up to the man and cautiously approached when their encounter took a dangerous turn. The man swiftly drew a gun and fired several rounds at the officers, and they returned his fire. Amidst the chaos, it appeared that the man had been wounded, but he again attempted to escape on foot. A few minutes later, the man was located three blocks away, lying injured in the street. As he was transported to the hospital for treatment for his gunshot wounds, the officers wasted no time trying to figure out why the driver was so quick to run from police. And they soon realized that this man had a hell of a lot to hide. The man was identified as Anthony J. Jackson, but he often went by the alias Wayne Eubank. Actually, he had many aliases and many addresses and even many birth dates. Sources can't seem to agree on his age or where he was from, but the most commonly reported age was 33 years old. And in 1972, Anthony Jackson lived with a few roommates at 154 Washington Street in the Dorchester area of Boston. While still in the hospital, Anthony was arrested on charges stemming from the shootout with police, And with him securely in custody, investigators took a long, hard look at the man's background. The Boston Globe reports that in 1965, Anthony Jackson was convicted of assault with intent to murder of a Cambridge woman. He was also wanted in southeastern Massachusetts for assault and attempted rape. Digging deeper, 
Police wanted to figure out if this guy, who they encountered apparently trying to force a woman into his car, had any known connections to the unsolved cases in the city. That's when they learned that Robert Johnson was one of Anthony Jackson's known aliases, and Ruth Hamilton had written out a check for $595 to Robert Johnson before she was killed. What's more, police were able to obtain a photo of Anthony Jackson attempting to cash that very check in the days after Ruth's murder. With that realization, it was like the floodgates opened. Even though Anthony attempted to cover up his tracks, for once, investigators were way ahead of him. Court records show that the day after he was arrested, Anthony told his roommates to move out of their shared apartment in Dorchester and take all of his belongings with them. The apartment had been cleared out before police showed up to search it three weeks later, but it wasn't totally empty. Police found a milk carton in a closet, and inside this milk carton was a bunch of nails. At first glance, they resembled the nails that were used to seal the closet shut where Ellen Reich's body was eventually discovered. A special agent for the FBI studied the nails from the milk carton and from the closet, and he determined that they were undoubtedly the same nails. Also while in custody, Anthony managed to contact a friend named Donald McDonald, and he asked Donald to go find his ex-wife and ask her for a specific green metal box. She'd know the one. Anthony instructed Donald to burn whatever was inside the box because he said the contents could convict him of murder. According to court documents, once Anthony's ex-wife saw what was inside, she threw it over a bridge into the Charles River. Yet somehow, police were able to recover the box and the hundreds of photos of nude women inside the box. One of the women in the photos was later identified as the still-missing Damaris Singh Gillespie. Investigators questioned Anthony Jackson on Singh's disappearance, and soon news outlets were reporting that police had reason to believe the missing student was dead. During interviews with the woman who lived with Anthony, police learned that on the night Singh disappeared, Anthony returned to their apartment around 11.30 p.m. after being gone for at least several hours. Anthony told one of his roommates, a woman named Patricia, that he'd been driving around all night with a body in his car, then a 1967 gold Cadillac with a dark vinyl top. Anthony asked Patricia to help him clean up the blood in the trunk before it dried, and she did. I should mention that Anthony's three female roommates, including the one who said she helped Anthony clean the blood from his car, they were all described as sex workers. Source material indicates that Anthony was possibly involved in sex work, too, and so the power dynamic was such that he told the women what to do, even clean up the scene of a possible murder. When the car had been scrubbed, Anthony handed Patricia a pair of shoes. They were cork sole heels, and they were spotted with blood. Patricia also noticed a moonstone ring and a silver and turquoise ring in the ashtray of his car. The shoes and the rings matched the description of the one Singh was wearing when she disappeared. Now, that gold Cadillac with the bloodied trunk wasn't the same car that Anthony was driving when police chased him down, though. The gold Cadillac ended up at a salvage yard, but officials were able to recover it before it was destroyed. The car was missing its tires by the time investigators found it, and they were working to track them down because 
The tires might give a clue as to where Singh's body could be found. Police hoped to find soil or other evidence in the tread that would point them to the missing girl. Tires or no tires, Anthony Jackson himself could have put an end to the search for Singh. He could have led investigators straight to where he disposed of her body, but instead, a 9- and 10-year-old boy were the ones to stumble upon a nude and frozen body in the woods of Billerica on February 3, 1973. Fingerprints confirmed the remains were that of Singh Gillespie. Anthony Jackson was finally indicted for first-degree murder and kidnapping in Singh's case. And over the next four years, Anthony Jackson would ultimately face four separate trials for the kidnapping and murder of Ruth Hamilton, Damaris Singh Gillespie, Ellen Reich, and Sandra Aramjian. And he was convicted in all but one stunning instance. The evidence against Anthony Jackson in each case was undeniable. He'd been seen cashing a check made out to him by Ruth Hamilton in the days after she was killed. Anthony had the shoes and clothing and jewelry of Singlespie in his car, and a witness would later testify that the voice of the man who called into the tip line set up for information in Singh's case matched Anthony's voice. The nails found in his apartment matched the nails used to seal the closet shut in Ellen Reich's case. Investigators also had blood type evidence matching Anthony Jackson to biological samples in Ellen's case. One by one, the women and their families got justice. Anthony Jackson was found guilty of the murders of Ruth, Singh, and Ellen. As for his trial for the murder of Sandra, the outcome was shockingly different. During the trial for Sandra's murder, Anthony tried to jump out of a second-floor window of the courtroom before he was dragged back inside. He got into a shouting match with the judge and was banned from the courtroom. He had to hear evidence against him by speaker in a different room. Reviewing the evidence against him today, and knowing he was already a convicted killer when he stood trial for Sandra's death, it seems like just as strong a case as the others. A witness testified that they saw Sandra get into Anthony Jackson's car before she disappeared. James Hammond's reporting for the Boston Globe describes testimony by an FBI chemist who said that hairs removed from the car Anthony was known to drive matched hairs taken from Sandra's body. Witnesses also testified that Sandra was among the photos of nude women found in that green metal box that belonged to Anthony, the same box he asked a friend to destroy because the contents could convict him of murder. The judge gave the jury their instructions for deliberation, and they returned with a verdict after just four hours. Anthony Jackson was acquitted of murder and rape in the case of Sandra Aramjian. Even Anthony's own defense counsel shook his head in surprise, telling the Boston Globe that he couldn't believe it. As surprising and frankly maddening as it may have been, at the very least, Anthony Jackson was not free. He was already serving a life sentence for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Ruth Hamilton, with other sentences for the other cases to follow. And so, he was handcuffed and chained and transported back to Bridgewater State Prison to resume his life behind bars. There are at least two names I haven't told you about yet, and two more whose cases remain unsolved to this day. 
18-year-old Debbie Charlton was a student at the Art Institute of Boston when she was found stabbed to death in her Brighton neighborhood apartment on December 17, 1970, almost a full year before Kathleen Randall's disappearance and death. The Lowell Sun reports that Debbie often hitchhiked around Boston. Her name is discussed in association with the other victims of Anthony Jackson, but I struggled to find any details of her case after 1972. 19-year-old Kathleen O'Gorman's body was discovered in the woods by hikers seven days after she was reported missing in July of 1971. She was on her way to work when she vanished. And like Debbie Charlton, Kathleen O'Gorman's name is often mentioned in reporting about the hitchhike murders. However, I don't see a record of any arrests, prosecution, or further investigation into Kathleen's case. The same goes for Deborah Ray Stevens, the woman who borrowed her sister's car to drive to class and was found dead the following morning so close to the safety of her own home. Though her case is believed to be connected to the other crimes of Anthony Jackson, it doesn't appear that he'd been identified as a suspect or investigated for her death. As for Kathleen Randall, whose body was found by hunters in the woods of Nashua, New Hampshire, her case remains on the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit's unsolved homicide list. Court records state that during a visit with his friend Donald McDonald after he was arrested, Anthony Jackson talked about a newspaper article that covered the investigations into the murders of the six women in Boston. Donald later testified that Anthony told him, quote, the one in New Hampshire, that's not mine, end quote. Originally, I planned to cover the case of Kathleen Randall alone, not knowing I was opening up the story of multiple cases, all with interwoven timelines and circumstances. But the more I learned, I knew I couldn't share her story without the others, too. The more I think about Kathleen's case, though, and considering the possibility that it stands alone and isn't connected to Anthony Jackson as he so casually claimed, the more it bothers me. In 2017, Damian Fisher reported for the Nashua Telegraph that most, if not all, physical evidence in Kathleen Randall's case had been destroyed in 1986. The destruction of this evidence was discovered during a review by the Nashua Police Department in 2001 and again by the New Hampshire Attorney General's office in 2015. From the 2001 report by Detective Frank Passan, he writes, quote, Every piece of evidence has been destroyed in this case, and the location of the evidence forms are marked destroyed across the page. This indicates to me that this was not an accident or inadvertent, but that these officers were specifically instructed to destroy the evidence in the case. End quote. In 2015, the New Hampshire Attorney General's office did their own investigation into the evidence in Kathleen's case. Though Assistant AG Jeffrey Strelzin said that there may be crimes associated with the destruction of that evidence, the statute of limitations had run out, and they could never determine who exactly destroyed it and why. Reports say that the only person who could have authorized the destruction of evidence was Robert Barry, who was bureau captain in 1986. Interestingly, He was also the original detective on the case for Nashua Police in 1972. He'd just been promoted to the rank of detective captain a little over a month before her remains were discovered, 
and it was likely one of the first homicide cases he'd worked after his promotion. The AG's office contacted Barry as part of their review in 2015, and he told them he had no knowledge of destruction of evidence in this particular case. And though he was adamant that he would not have ordered any evidence destroyed in any unsolved murder case, he suggested maybe it was destroyed without his knowledge. Destruction of physical evidence in an unsolved homicide is a major blow to the pursuit of justice and answers for Kathleen Randall. But her case remains open and active. So, if you have information regarding the 1972 homicide of Kathleen Randall, please contact the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663. You can also email coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov or leave a tip via the form linked in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. You can find all source material for this case at darkdowneast.com. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at darkdowneast. This platform is for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones and for those who are still searching for answers. I'm not about to let those names or their stories get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. Dark Down East is a production of Kylie Media and AudioChuck. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?